Welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Welcome to Epiphany Fellowship Sunday Morning Gathering. Thanks for being with us today. Um, I, we know that there are a lot of uh, different uh, outlets that you could go to and engage with, and so we thank you for coming here. Of course, our Epiphany people, we expect you and our attenders, we expect you to be here, our Epiphanites across the nation and across the world. Thank you for tuning in as well. Today, in light of the death of George Floyd and also Ahmaud Arbery and all of the different things that are going on in our society, um, again, I paused like for two things, and so I feel like it was... I'd be remiss if we didn't engage the trauma of this week. Um, a, a, a extreme amounts of trauma, particularly in the black community. And um, the Bible talks about the fact that the church is supposed to be a light and we're supposed to be able to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And so what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to do something more conversational, yet biblically enriching, historically refreshing, uh, psychologically engaging, and on every level of what we need to do, we, we wanna be able to see the congregation and the world be shepherded by God's perspective and God's way of doing things. One of the things that we see in the framework of God's, uh, in the framework of the scriptures is that we see that the scriptures give specific answers for different issues in our lives. One of the main passages that I want us to use as a constant biblical foundation for our discussions and um, our desire for activity on this is Isaiah chapter one, verse 17. I want you to kind of put this verse into your repertoire. As a matter of fact, um, I'll start at verse 16, but verse 16 and 17, and these verses are really gonna kind of pervade our, our time together in this, in this time that we're together at this point and beyond this. So it says, um, it says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's case. And so today, as we look at this idea of particularly, what, what, what does it look like for us to pursue justice, right? Um, as the church, people are asking me, what do we do? Um, uh, and then how, how do we correct the oppressor um, in a way that we're looking and trusting God to deal with the oppressor eschatologically, but what does it look like for us to correct the oppressor now in the time pre the future of Jesus' return? Not only that, we want to defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow's case. Now, fatherless and widows were viewed as a subgroup of people within Israel that were the vulnerable. So now we can take that theological principle of vulnerability and just apply it to vulnerable in any society. And so that's what we wanna to do today, and that's what our time is. I wanna pray, then I wanna introduce our, 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 our group today that'll be, uh, and our professionals and our, our believers who love Jesus and some of our leaders at the church who will help speak into the things that we're dealing with in our society, and hopefully you'll find some encouragement in it. Let's go before the Lord together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to see uh, what it looks like, Lord God, for us to pursue justice as the church, for us to correct oppression, defend the rights of those who are vulnerable. Help that to be clear in our time. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. So we have, of course, with us, we have Pastor Nyron Burke. Uh, he is the stewardship pastor here and also he is uh, the founder and uh, the president and CEO of Lithero. Uh, so he is an entrepreneur and has a a background in understanding a lot of the economics of things that are going on in our society today, but he's also a beloved, one of our beloved pastors here. We also have uh, a, a one of our deaconesses, uh, uh, Dr. Tiffany Gill, who is a professor of history. 
um, and she teaches at the University of Delaware, and she has years and years of expertise in the matter of understanding particularly the history of the church, particularly of blacks in America, and particularly American history. And that montage gives her really a great amount of wherewithal in order to how to give us a big picture of how history has repeated itself. But then she's laced with the truth of the word of God, which is now able to see history through a biblical lens as well. We also have with us Dr. Sarita Lyons. Of course, she was the founder of her own uh, agency that she dissolved in order to come on staff and help lead here. She's a deacon, but she's also over community life here. And so what she's gonna be bringing to the table with her psychological background and her biblical background and experiential background is the ability to speak into these matters and see what's the psychosis of a generation. But then how does the Bible and how she integrates um, her, her, her psychological background and her theological background in order to have impact on our eth ethno and anthropological issues of today. So what I'd like to do with you all is basically I want to start with Dr. Gill. Um, I want to ask just, just, just as a first question, what has, this feels different, right? This, this week just hits this, I mean, this has happened, we've had our, but something feels a little more permanent yeah. now. I'm gonna start with you, Dr. Gill. Why would you, what, what, what happened this week from your perspective that made it like this was the last straw? Yes, it's, it's, it was particularly painful this week. Um, at, we've all lived through the hashtags, we've lived through the many names that we could, we could spend our whole time together just calling mm -hmm. out the names within the last five years um, of people that we know have, have been victims of state violence, which is what police brutality is. It's, it's death by the state without a trial, without an execution. Um, but this one felt different, and, I, and I've thought a lot about why. Mm. I th for me, it's because the the trauma of black death feels so near right now. And whether it is when we're thinking about the, the COVID crisis and the way that it is not something that is affecting all communities equally, but is one that is impacting black life and black lives in particular ways, how black people are the ones on the front lines of yeah. this crisis doing the essential work but not being honored as such. Mm -hmm. And so when this came, I, for me, it just came at this moment where I feel like we were already kicked down to the ground. Yeah. And it literally has felt like a communal stepping on of our necks. Mm -hmm. it, it, and, and, and I think that is also something about it. It was the, the, the coldness and the callousness in that officer's face. Mm -hmm. it, it was almost dead. I mean, he, he didn't have a reaction. Mm -hmm. He wasn't even in anger. It was almost normal. Mm. Um, there was something about that coldness mm. in this moment where black pain feels so near, where we're, we're in a crisis that is impacting black people, that we're dealing with the fear of the pandemic, but this, this institutional pandemic that has been with us for far too long, mm -hmm. still continues. That, that, that police violence doesn't take a break for mm. the pandemic. Mm. For me, it was just yes. that intensification wow. of black death at a moment where it just feels all too real, that the pain of it just hit worse. Yeah, Pastor Nyron, talk to us. Why do you think it felt this um, with uh, George Floyd felt just different? I think for me, it was building on the Ahmaud Arbery situation. Mm -hmm. um, and, not, and the Ahmaud Arbery situation was building on all the other names, um, the Walter Scotts, um, the Eric Garner. Um, but I, uh, throughout the history, I, I w actually went back and looked, and I remember Trayvon Martin was in 2012. So There's been eight years of hashtags of this social media phenomenon that kind of focuses more on these incidents and um, through all those names, I've never wept. But this time um, at my dining room table, I, I was just looking at the news and mm -hmm. saw it and broke mm -hmm. down. Um, and I think for, for me personally, uh, it was because I was still grieving. I was still in the middle of processing the loss of Ahmad, the murder of Ahmad. Um, and so to have this come on the heels of that mm. um, was very painful. 
uh, I think the other aspect of it for me mm. was, to, to Dr. Gill's point, the state element of it. Um, that image of a, a police officer whose role is supposed to be to protect and to serve, um, mm. of being an agent of murder. Uh, mm. And another police officer standing there, watching as a witness, mm. not intervening. Um, so I, I think those are the things for me that were, were particularly painful that, that made it just very searing. I'll never get that image out of my head uh, mm. of his knee on his neck. And for so long, uh, it wasn't a, an emotional reaction. It wasn't an overreaction. It was calculated. It was cold. Um, it was callous. Um, the complete disregard. Mm. It was like he was crushing a bug. Uh, and then went on about his day. Yeah. Um, and and uh, the other aspect for it is, is how long this has continued to happen. Yeah. You know, as we look through history, I'm certainly not a historian as Dr. Gillis, but just reading yeah. and learning more about history yeah. and seeing how this is not uncommon. Um, the callous taking of black life uh, is uh, part and parcel of the, the fabric of how um, this nation has operated, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I think for all those reasons, it was just searing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Sarita, what makes this, um, this string of stuff, because we're not even just talking about the deaths, we're talking about the brother in Central Park, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, um, we're talking about the millennials that were in, um, actually was it Minneapolis who were in the gym, in a building, and the white man was asking why they were there. Yeah. And, um, and they're business owners. They own an office building, for what I understand, and they run co a company. Yeah. And even that didn't, uh, you know, shield them from uh, racial profiling. What, what makes basically this week different for you? Uh, I think one of the things that makes it different, uh, I agree that it's on the heels of just a recent incident that we're still waiting for resolution for, we're still grieving. But I also think because it happened in the context of the pandemic, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I see the grace of God even in allowing it to happen in the pandemic, because what we all have attested to um, God doing in our individual lives, collective lives during the pandemic mm -hmm. is forcing stillness mm. and, and getting our attention. Mm. And what's different maybe this time than maybe some of the other times is we didn't have as many distractions from the pain and from the images because people are going back and forth to work and school and can go out and play and get distance. Yeah. I think the lack of being able to get distance and the, the frequency with which people are on social media, it just kept it in your face. Yeah. Almost as if God is saying, look, mm. look. Um, and sometimes we avoid pain because we look away. Mm -hmm. But there was something about this week that was unavoidable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's cumulative. It's cumulative. It is... It's people are weary and tired. Uh, it's like when we grieve a loved one mm -hmm. and then someone else dies uh, and you don't get a break. It, and it felt, it felt collectively offensive. Yeah. I think we felt it as if he were our husband, our brother, our friend, our cousin, uh, in a way that was just really in your face. Yeah, Dr. Gill. Um, I wish we could recreate the back, so we're going to figure that out, how we were talking in the back. You can be kind of like a historical consultant for us. Talk to us about what you see from a 30,000-foot view, particularly of American history. How does this fit into the narrative of American history, and what should we be thinking about uh, as it pertains to that? I'll ask you the civil rights question, the organization of that later, but just... Under, just from a 30,000 foot picture, what, 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 what patterns do you see as this fits into the narrative of, Amer of American history? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the frustrating things about seeing kind of a long view of this, and it, it almost makes you feel hopeless. I, I, this week, the, the scripture I kept going to was Psalm 13. How long, Lord, how long? Um, 
because I thought about really the entirety of the 20th century and now we're you know, 20 years into the 21st century and how enduring police violence has been. Wow. Um, I think there's a way that because we have you know, the cameras and you know, p- civilians are now policing the police by taking pictures that it feels more intense, right? And we're living yeah. through it. And you know, most folks don't think of the past in that very vibrant way. But my mind just kept going back to how police brutality, violence from the police against African-Americans is probably the enduring through line of, 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 of what black folks have been struggling against. Yeah. That every movement for black freedom has come through this anti-black violence in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Whether we're looking at you know, rioting that happens, right? We, we're, we're in this moment now where, where people are calling riots or, or rebellions. Um, that that is, that is common, that has happened so many times. And there's something about police brutality, I think, that is different than other forms of anti-black violence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we are, unfortunately, in a culture where anti-black violence occurs in a lot of ways. But when it is the arm of the state, when it is people who we literally pay through our taxes, who are there to, as Pastor Nyron said, protect, and that those are the very people we need to be protected from. Yeah. There's something that makes that particularly vulnerable. The other long through line is that very little happens to police officers mm. that do this. And you know, with this, there was at least some swift action mm-hmm. on the part of the mayor and all of that, and, and that's encouraging. And there are these few moments, right? We grasp them when there's a conviction, but they're so few and far between that it reminds us that this is systematic. Yeah. This is not an incident. This is not, dare I say, a few bad apples in there. And I'm, I'm not condemning police officers, but I am condemning a system that makes black criminality the key issue for police mm. and policing. Mm. So much so that that woman in Central Park knew that the greatest Absolutely. threat that she could lobby against this, this man bird watching was to say, I'm gonna call the police and I'm gonna tell them an African-American man is threatening me. This is not a matter of a bad rogue cop. Absolutely. This is a matter of a system that has criminalized black people in general, black men in particular for a particular end. And so there's that lament of how long, how long, but I think the long view also can get us to think about the fact that we can't keep responding incident to incident that this is a long enduring issue. There have been people before us who have been fighting this. And if we're in for this fight and we truly are as offended by this as we say we are, then we have to be ready to take down entire systems. Pastor Nair, I want you to be thinking about that system thing you were talking about earlier. But before we come to that, uh, Dr. Lyons, I wanted you to kind of give us kind of a psychological evaluation of America. Can you um, be crazy? Can you put America? <laughs> <laughs> can you put us on your couch, if you will? And if you had a black person on this couch, a white person on this couch, what would be your psych evaluation? If and then we know those neither neither are monolithic within their own people group. However, if you could go, if you can go the like the typical, if you will, stereotypical route in psychological evaluation. In relation to the trauma, how would you, how would you counsel or basically psychologically assess what's going on with black America right now, psychologically? And then what's going on with the part of white America that's still ignoring the reality of the fact that race is an issue in our country? Does, Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, that, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a long session. Um, so, from a clinical perspective, to apply the way we do things, um, what makes a good counselor a good counselor is his or her ability to first listen. Mm. 
And so what I would do, what I think the world is doing so that we could have a right diagnosis is to listen. So what do we hear? Mm, what do we hear from black people? And what do we hear from white people? Mm. What do we hear from black Christians? What do we hear from white Christians? Counselors don't just diagnose, they listen. They observe, they see. And so, mm. um, and then one of the other things that we do is we do psychoeducation. So we have to provide some clarity and education on the issue. And so one of the issues is also defining even what racism is, mm -hmm. what this thing is we're experiencing. And so, you know, some have defined racism as power with prejudice. And that color prejudice is this emotional attachment mm. and unwillingness to let go of a falsehood or a lie about a person even if you know it's a lie mm -hmm. or believed it's a lie. Mm -hmm. So this emotional attachment to a lie, what is the emotional attachment white police officers have about black people mm -hmm. that would make them think they were justified to keep their knee on a black man's neck? Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. So what are the lies, what are the falsehoods that white America has an emotional attachment to. That's part of what we have to diagnose too. Wow. And part of that is people's presuppositions. Part of that is people's prejudices, um, implicit bias. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that I think is important um, is when we think about black people, number one, in reality, and then if we think about kind of a, a psychological profile, mm -hmm. people show up on the couch, literally and figuratively, every day with race-based stress syndrome or race-based wow. trauma. Um, in fact, research shows that African Americans, when they experience other forms of trauma, when compared to white Americans, are experiencing that one trauma in a heightened way because they have all of this historical race trauma that's also thrown into the mix. Wow. And so black people have exhibited multiple symptoms that would meet DSM-5 criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's one of the things. Um, so what do you see in that? You see actually living through incidents mm -hmm. or what we're all being exposed to is the vicarious trauma or secondary trauma from having watched videos or listened to news over and over again with the decimation and degradation of black bodies. Mm. And so we all have been traumatized. We have trauma just from the historical information about slavery. We have trauma from microaggressions at work or when we go into a store to shop. Mm -hmm. We have psychological trauma from how people perceive black people as a threat. And so we have this burden of trauma that you know, create symptoms of depression, anxiety, fear. So all of these things, people who want to avoid engaging in life or avoid stimulus or stimuli that remind them of their traumatic event, people who are having, so really race-based trauma is the psychological, physiological, emotional, and even spiritual result of continuous experiences of discrimination and violence against black people. Wow. In light of that, Pastor Nairon, um, Isaiah 17 says, correct the oppressor. Mm -hmm. um, you talked about earlier in our, in our time, our personal time together, just about an arrest that happened, but that could still continue to be a systemic issue. Kind of break down what, what needs to be corrected. Yeah. Um, I would say it operates at, at two different levels. Um, from a policy and even a practice standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think starting with the policy standpoint, well, actually before that, I think what does this incident represent? Because there could be an approach that says this is just an individual incident, individual police officer, and I think that's going to be the, the common narrative, particularly uh, in white America, that you'll mm -hmm. typically see. Individual issue, bad apple, I think someone said earlier. I think one, we have to attack that because what that does not do is solve the problem happening nationally. Yeah. Because if you look through history or even just recent history, you see issues in, um, in New York, Eric Garner, mm -hmm. right? You see Walter Scott down in the South. Um, you see this issue in the Midwest, right? Rodney King, right? 
California, right? So you, even just in recent history, in just recent memory, mm -hmm. you see these issues happening across the country. So we have to understand that this is not just individual issues, that there's a systemic problem, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. means that we need to grieve the individual issue, address the individual issue. There needs to be individual justice in the situation, mm -hmm. but how do we prevent these kind of things from happening systemically, right, across the country? So I think the first step is even understanding that these are not individual issues, and for our white brothers and sisters, because they honestly have the majority of the political power mm. to influence these things, to say this is not just an individual issue, individual problem with this particular officer, but how do we look systemically, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Um, so you can think of it like uh, the way you might think of poverty, mm -hmm. right? We understand that individual people are affected by poverty, but how do we solve poverty generally, mm -hmm. homelessness, mm -hmm. et cetera? It's a policy problem nationally. So I think that's the first step is understanding and agreeing to that. I think secondly, there are things that the, as citizens mm -hmm. in a republic that we have a responsibility to do. Mm -hmm. And then there's things that policymakers have a responsibility to do. I think first off on the citizen side, I think we all need to take responsibility for saying this is our problem. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I would recommend for citizens is to continue to record the police. Mm -hmm. That we have a responsibility for, had, that, had a, 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 a white woman not recorded that incident in that parking lot, who knows whether we would know what had happened to George Floyd because the, the official record described it as him having a medical incident. Right? So I think there is, there is strong benefit, and it's one thing that we can do, and I'm grateful for, for modern technology and allowing us to be able to be part of that accountability system. So I think one policy recommendation I would make for all of us, keep your phone on. Record these incidents. Put them up on social media, because that's going to help. But from a policymaker standpoint, we, we're not the policymakers. Mm -hmm. From a policymaker standpoint, I think there are some things that mayors in particular and police chiefs can do to begin to prevent some of these things from happening. Because recording something is accountability, right? That's not gonna stop somebody from, from doing something. I think a couple things have to happen. One, I'm a huge fan of uh, training for police officers in understanding their own implicit bias, mm. of getting into thinking, of, of saying, I have these issues. Mm. How do I un un uncover them? How do I deal with them? And then also recognizing that, to, in, in, that we have to um, I think body cameras are a, uh, a critical thing. Yeah. I think one of the things that we have to do is think about how body cameras are used. Like in the incident with Stefan Clark, mm -hmm. the officers are actually on recording themselves saying, hey, mute, mute your, your body camera. And we don't know what happened after they muted. So I think having body cameras that can't be muted is, is a critical thing. I think ensuring that anytime a weapon is drawn or handcuffs are pulled, that the, 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 the first, the five minutes before that thing mm -hmm. happens is recorded. Mm -hmm. And I think we also need to have committees that have a significant community presence on them that have the power to review these videos whenever the, a, a violent incident happens. If somebody is shot, someone is harmed um, in a police incident, that video needs to be reviewed. And I understand there are privacy issues, those kind of things, we can navigate that. But I think those are some of the practical steps that I think we have to advocate for that are going to help prevent some of these things from happening nationally, right? Because it's not just an incident. It's not a rogue cop. There, there, there is a system going on. And how do we implement systemic changes that we can hold mayors, police chiefs, police sergeants accountable for saying, are you doing these things yeah. to deal with some of these issues and prevent some of these things from happening? Yeah. Dr. Gill, you talked about the civil, you have a lot of reflection, study, and work on the civil rights movement. Talk to us about um, the need for this generation and beyond to learn from the civil rights movement. You have organizations that are saying stuff like, I'm, I'm not your mama's civil rights movement, which you wouldn't say that if you really understood mm -hmm. the significant infrastructure yeah. that the civil rights movement had. W what are your thoughts on that statement and what, um, what should we be doing? Because right now, of, um, I don't, I don't want to call it civil rights. I think black, I, I think black response is so decentralized because everybody can have a voice mm -hmm. through social media, but having a voice doesn't necessarily change things because I think the voiceless kind of have a voice now in a way, but that, that, that's, there's no advocacy for change and there's no organization around that. What do you think um, is different now from back then and what the specific question is, what can we learn from the civil rights movement for yeah. now? 
certainly as a historian, it's probably no surprise that I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from history. And I think with the civil rights movement in particular, often the way that most of us have been taught about it, it makes it look very spontaneous. Mm-hmm that Rosa Parks got tired one day, black folks started marching, and then things changed. And that couldn't be any further from the truth, that this was, one, one place to sort of think about it is to read the actual accounts of leaders and organizers within that moment, they called it the civil rights movement, but more generally, they called it the black freedom struggle. And I think that's a, that's a key difference mm-hmm. of how they saw this. They saw this not as this moment of escalation, but they saw it as an enduring freedom struggle for black freedom. And mm-hmm. I think if we think in those ways, we, we don't think of the civil rights movement as something that has passed but that the freedom struggle is still enduring. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, if you really look at the movement history, it was strategic, it was organized, it was not spontaneous. There were very few things about it that were spontaneous. There was strategy about how to engage media. There was strategy about where they should mount campaigns. There were strategies about what role black folks should have even played and what role white people should play. All of this came about through a lot of planning, organizing, and there were clear demands. Mm. We often, we all probably know about the March on Washington and Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and that's, that's all that we learn about that. We often don't realize that this was something that had been planned as early as the 1940s, mm-hmm. and that it was an economic justice movement, that the full name of it is the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, right? Mm-hmm. So there were clear goals there were things that they wanted from President Kennedy out of that. It wasn't just a matter of let's all get together and listen to some speakers and 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 show a force. That that's powerful as a visual. Yeah. But I think it's important for us to understand that in order for us to be engaged in the project of black freedom, which is what they left for us, the unfinished business of black freedom, is that we have to be strategic, mm-hmm. we have to be organized, and we have to be sacrificial. One of the things I always teach my students um, is that, and, and we have to be ready for young people in some ways to, to bear the burden of this, that the civil rights movement, while we think of King and, and, and those leaders, it was very much youth-led and student-led. Mm-hmm. And those young people, it, it, it tears me up every time I think about it. Those young college students, black students, white students, high school students that participated in marches, that did freedom rides where they would test the segregation patterns as the buses would go to the south, and they knew that they were going to get firebombed. They knew that they were going to attack. These are people in their 20s who wrote out wills because they were ready to sacrifice for this. They saw this as so important. I think, you know, we, 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 we're, are we ready for that? Mm. And, and that's scary. And I'm not saying that I am and others aren't, but the battle against black freedom has always been so strong mm-hmm. that the battle for it has to be. And so that's part of the legacy they left us of strategy, of organization, of the need for key leadership and the need for great sacrifice. With all that we're saying, right, how does the gospel shape how the church thinks about these issues? You know, when I, start with me, when I think about how the gospel shapes it, if you will, I think specifically about the fact that, you know, when you talk about police brutality, Jesus is very familiar with that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Jesus uh, is a recipient Mm -hmm. of the Roman police falsely arresting him. He's mm-hmm. the recipient of multiple falsified evidence at a court case, mm-hmm. at multiple court cases, an illegal one by the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. Um, Herod didn't even want to try the case. And, um, and Pilate, basically, they, they, he, I mean, he was forced into a public jury trial. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, public jury. And they said, crucify him. And mm-hmm. he was forced to do that. But before that, Jesus was beaten by canonine whips, he had thorns put on his head. And so even the march to the cross was unjust treatment of a marginalized poor person. Mm-hmm. Um, and our salvation came through that means. What, what, would, what, what do you kind of think about when you think about gospel-shaped thinking of the church? Mm-hmm. I'll start with Pastor Nyron. Yeah. Gospel-shaped thinking of the church and how we think about, because um, people are like, what, how does this connect? Like, mm-hmm. 
How does this connect to the gospel and the Bible? What does this have to do with the Bible? Yeah. I, you know, politics in the church doesn't mix when people don't realize that yeah. the Bible begins and ends with politics because yeah. God is the creator of all things. Yeah. Uh, Adam and Eve are vice regents yep. that are yep. supposed to rule. That's that's kingdom governmental language. Mm -hmm. You know, you have Noah, you have mm -hmm. uh, uh, Abel's blood speaking from the ground mm -hmm. all the way through to Jesus Christ coming back and setting up eternal justice. Right. So. Politics is all through the Bible. But politics is how do you govern how man right. relates to man? Right. So, so talk to me about talk to me about that. <laughs> A couple of things come to mind, um, and, and I get super excited uh, when I think about Christ, mm -hmm. um, because the the gospel is not 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 about simply individual people going to heaven. Mm. That is a complete reduction of the gospel. Mm -hmm. The gospel is cosmic. That Christ coming into this world, invading yeah. this sinful world, yeah. and, and dying, and ushers in a whole new reality, mm -hmm. right? And, 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 and we as the church, as ministers of the gospel, as disciple makers, are the, 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 we're the vanguard mm -hmm. of this new reality that Christ has ushered in. Uh -huh. And fundamental, fundamental, I think about Second Thessalonians. When, when the Thessalonian church is being persecuted, what does Paul encourage them with? Mm. He says, when Jesus comes back, he's going to repay them for the injustice against you. Mm -hmm. That's part of the gospel. He's giving them oppressed people gospel hope through Christ. Mm -hmm. So, that gives me, I read that this week. Yeah. I went back yeah. and I said, how does the Bible encourage those who are being oppressed? Absolutely. And I said, it is through Christ. Mm -hmm. So the gospel gives hope in that way. So I think mm -hmm. that's the first thing to, to, to say to people and understand is realize that this gospel thing, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. right? As we say, it's showing off the glory of Christ in every area of life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Christ rules over all things. Yeah. So I think that, that, that for me is, is the first critical element is to understand the, the, the massivity of the gospel. Mm -hmm. That this, what we're talking about is a gospel issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Christ's reign applies to every single area of life and anything, anything that deviates from his perspective of how human beings should be treated is a violation of love your neighbor. That's amazing. That's right? amazing. And that's what the gospel is about. That's amazing. Paul says, fulfill the law Loving your neighbor. That, that's, that's the whole sum of the law. Right, right, right. right that's right, the law right. of Christ. Right, right, right. So how can we, we call ourselves Christians and say, well, Jesus doesn't apply over here. I thought he was God. Mm -hmm. I thought he ran everything. Right. So, so that, that for me is an encouragement to me. The, the second aspect of it that I think is absolutely fundamental is actually the Lord led me in to, to look at Jonah this week because I was struggling with, with I was like, Lord. The way my heart is going, I know this ain't like you. <laughs> and one of the things he showed me, and I, I was surprised that it that was really Jonah, is because Jonah, the Assyrians, which Nineveh was the capital, the Assyrians were oppressive. They Very. were an oppressive people, incredibly oppressive. And, and, and Jonah said, he said, Lord, I did not want to come preach to these people mm -hmm. because I knew that you were a compassionate God, yes. slow to anger, merciful He's like, I know you, Lord. And if they repent, you'll forgive them. And if they repent, you'll forgive them. And, I, and, <laughs> and the, Lord was, the Lord used that. Mm. That's a, another gospel application is that the gospel flows from the nature of who God is. Mm -hmm. Right? Oops, sorry. Uh, and, and so, one, the gospel itself, but also the nature of our God. Right? That, that mm. gives me a, a sense of, Lord, I need to have hope for even the racists to repent. Mm. Right. I don't mm -hmm. know. I think about Charlotte, the, the, the uh, throughout history, how the black church has responded to violence. I think of John That's Lewis, crazy. one of my heroes. Right. I, I did an internship in college and, and hearing him speak in Congress, talking about his stories of being beaten and not responding mm. through the gospel. Right. So I, I think there, there's so many, I could talk for hours about just the power of the gospel and how mm. it has sustained, you read a book like Slave Religion and seeing slaves apply the gospel when they're being beaten for meeting to worship God, right? So the, there is this, this the, the, the power, the gospel gives me, without the gospel, I don't know what I would be. 
absolutely. With, with these kind of issues going on. The gospel gives me hope. It sustains me. It gives me uh, strategies for how to deal with things. I can look at the, the hallway of faith through the black church. So uh, without the gospel, we, we're lost. Yeah, 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 yeah. So Dr. Gill, as a historian who's a Christian, how does the gospel inform your thoughts about these issues through history? I mean, I think in, in a lot of the same ways that, that Pastor Nyren um, raised. One thing when I think about the, the black church, I think about the black, how the black church is a miracle. Mm. It right? is. Right? That any of us absolutely have received faith through Jesus Christ um, based on the yeah. fact that those who claim to be our brothers and sisters in Christ have often not just been the ones who haven't supported black dignity, black freedom, but have often been the ones mm. to be at the forefront of taking that away. Mm. That we have a rich tradition that predates even our presence in this country mm -hmm. of engagement with Christ and engagement with the gospel that the Bible speaks so clearly to the oppressed is mm. one of those things that, I mean, th there's almost, you know, not, not thinking about partiality because God, you know, goes against so, it, but right. there's a special place for the brokenhearted, mm. right? Whenever there's a mention of the brokenhearted in gospel, it's usually followed by a, a, a message about God's presence. Yeah, yeah. That as people who have experienced so much oppression, but have clung to our Lord, mm that there are aspects of the gospel that we can shine, of that light of the gospel that I think is so different and unique and mm -hmm. has so much to teach. It, it, it breaks my heart when I talk to folks who have gone to seminary and they learn so little of black church history. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like that to me is, is such a ripe place to understand the living out of the gospel. Yeah. Um, I, I was thinking a lot in scripture about the rich young ruler and how mm -hmm. that story is told, you know, in, in three of the gospels and how it's about, you know, this, this sadness of someone who had privilege mm -hmm. and didn't want to give any of that up to follow God and, 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 and how hard it is yeah. for those who have so much earthly privilege. I even think about my own life. Areas where I may have privilege are mm -hmm. often the areas that are the hardest for me to surrender to God. Mm. I, I think that's a message for our white brothers and sisters to really sort of think that through, that Jesus emptied himself of all of the privileges of heaven mm. to be with us, right? There, there's something precious in the sight of the Lord about those of us who have to walk this faith with that utter dependence. And so as frustrated as I get, having to teach the same thing, reading documents written 150 years ago that could have been written today, mm -hmm. um, looking back about the framing of black criminality in Philadelphia in the early 20th century, written a, a century ago, that sound like something that would have been written today. It's frustrating, but it also reminds me that if we cling to the Lord through this, there is a way that those who have been oppressed to demonstrate the light of the gospel um, and we all would do well to to kind of sit with that I think this is up this is up how's the gospel shape your thinking in these matters dr. Lyons yes I think for me um, it's about what it means to be a disciple mm -hmm. and so we think okay let's learn the Bible let's study God's word um, so that we can know it but to be a disciple is to know the truth so that you can do it. Yeah. And so what does it mean to live out the truth of the gospel? What does it mean to pick up your cross and follow him? And Jesus is very clear that if you're not willing to lose your life, you know, for his sake, mm -hmm. you know, if you're trying to save your life, this, this giving away of your life, this losing your life, this sacrificial living, this cross-carrying Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think we've moved away from that. We've become very theological weighty, but practically anemic. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about even in Romans, when it talked about 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern, right, the good, perfect will of God. Yeah. It's not just so that you can discern it to know it. Mm. It's so that you can discern it to do it. Yeah. And so what does it look like for Christians in the arena of social justice to live out their faith as a disciple mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ? And how is the gospel informing mm -hmm. our thinking around social justice, our thinking around issues of racism and white supremacy? And are we reflecting the faith that we have in our head in our daily life? Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things I think about in terms of my own kind of challenge for public witness and gospel engagement and social justice is it says very clearly in the second chapter of Philippians that he was he came in the form of a servant right yeah. in the likeness of man and it says and he died even death on a cross mm -hmm. that that Jesus who died to overturn every arena of oppression starting with sin, mm -hmm. but every other oppression in our life, he was crucified publicly. And I think that means something. Mm -hmm. And in what ways are we sacrificing? In what ways are we publicly overturning issues of oppression? Mm -hmm. And are we willing to give up the private rooms, the comfort of our friends and people like us where we're just reasoning about these issues? But is there any public cross carrying? Is there any public sacrifice for God's glory as a disciple? Amen. Amen. One of the things that we have engaged with in talking about this is we've gone the gambit of talking about it historically, psychologically, uh, even somewhat economically. Uh, and we've talked about the different issues and, uh, and then we've come down to the issue of how does the gospel shape it? One of the things in walking away from this that is very, very important um, uh, that everybody's asking, what do we do? I think that um, one of the things uh, that's a part of the doing of this process is, you know, I, I have several A's that I, I, that I use. You, you gotta be aware, you gotta acknowledge, you gotta have accountability, and you gotta be active. Let me say that again. You gotta be aware. You gotta be aware of what's going on. That means white brothers and sisters, you gotta educate yourself um, and stop asking black people to educate you. Um, because edu us educating you can be a form of trauma. Like I always say, um, historically, we learn how to go to the moon. We learn mathematical equations. If we can go to the moon and build space shuttles, we can go to the library and we can go online and figure something out in relation to researching the history of racism in this country. Because one of the things that I, people are asking, particularly whites are asking, what do I do? One of the things that I want you to be careful of is thinking that doing one activity atones for 400 years of of, of, of oppression, suppression, and repression. And so one of the things I wanna encourage whites to do who are ready to do something is, is stop thinking that, that your activity atones for what happened. Um, but we do wanna see restorative, what we call restorative justice that applies restitution. But I think uh, 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 awareness on what's going on. And, once, and as you're doing, and this is not you do this just in this order, you can do all four of these simultaneously. Being active. That's what the Bible says. Uh, let, let us uh, meet pressing needs in order that we may not be found unfruitful because racial injustice is a major missiological issue in our society today. And the church needs to treat racial injustice as a major missiological issue. Why? Because it's an obstacle for many in this generation and a barrier to hearing the gospel and understanding uh, people even uh, young people understanding what we call in theology theodicy why does evil exist why does racism exist and so one of the things that we have to do is we have to answer that question by correcting oppression so uh, uh, so so uh, so again uh, going through the whole idea of having awareness but then acknowledging that there's something wrong in this country one of the big things that would be a huge step forward is the acceptance and acknowledgement that something's wrong and now we talk about incorrective oppression now we got to be held accountable Accountability is the ability to say now that, we, now that we know that it's happening, now that we're aware that it's happening, and on some level I'm going to continue to grow in the awareness and acknowledging this, now what we want to do in the midst of all of that is be accountable and begin holding people accountable on every single level in every situation like Pastor Nairo was talking about, systemic issues, but then also being active. We need multi-levels and multi-layers of activity. We need people who bring attention to the issue. 
But that's only one. That's, uh, some people who bring attention to the issue may not be people who do the other things. We need people who bring attention to the issue. We need prophetic voices that diffuse uh, foolishness as an apologetic for what's going on. We need street soldiers, people that are on the street that are doing activities in order to actually uh, bring awareness and bring movement in different cities on different levels. We need people infiltrating different levels of the systems of our society. We also need those who build long-term institutions that act as support for those who are oppressed because until the system changes, one of the things that the black church has done was created alternative entities mm -hmm. in order to override the fact that the system hasn't changed because we can't wait for the system to change to start getting stuff done. We have to have really micro witnesses within our different spheres that act as activists, if you will, in advocating and bringing change in redlining like a Berean Baptist, Berean Presbyterian that's on broad and Diamond, the pastor there, the founding pastor there, amazing man of God, who started a bank in this community when blacks could not buy uh, property in this community and they were redlined, guess what he did? Well, he said, I can't wait for the system to change. And so what he did was he said, we're gonna advocate for systemic change, but in the midst of doing that, there are present needs, pressing needs that need engaging. So he started a bank in order to help loans to happen. That's why we at Epiphany Fellowship are working on all of the things, and that's why we're calling for your investment. We're calling for your investment to invest. We wanna see millions of dollars go into education in our community because there's a huge educational gap. We wanna see economic development, housing, jobs, and creating of opportunities that African-Americans need to have now that we can't wait for the system to change in. So what do we do? We, do, we work on systemic change long-term, but we also have to have short-term things because people gotta eat now. People need a house now. People need education now. And so we wanna, the church has always been, particularly the black church, but the church of Jesus Christ. This needs to be, a, the, the, the issue is racial injustice isn't a black church issue. Mm -hmm. It's not a black community that's issue. Right. It is a kingdom issue. That's right. And so since that's a kingdom issue, guess what we have to do in engaging this kingdom issue? White church, black church, multi-ethnic church. We have to all say, let's band together in the midst of waiting for systemic change and waiting for ultimate change that Jesus will bring. For now, us filling in the gaps. Guess what shalom is? A shalom is the ability to fill in the gaps to bring uh, redemption together. That's what the word diakonos is the activity, the servant activity that deacons are supposed to do to fill in gaps. And so the church is supposed to be the global deacon, if you will, for shalom. And listen, justice is shalom in action. Let me, let me say that again. Justice is shalom in action. And shalom is rethreading all creation back to God's original design. And guess what influences that? the gospel. Man, we love you guys. Hopefully this was helpful. Um, hopefully this can even be something you use on, uh, in your homes to talk to your children, to engage in, to start dialogue. Please, Epiphanites, attenders, everybody, share this. Make this go viral through social media because people need to hear from the church. The, one of the ways that helps this to happen is for you to share it so that scores and scores and scores and scores of people can utilize what we've talked about today as a blueprint and a tool. Also, you got Woke Church that you can utilize the latter section as an action portion. We love you. God bless you. Take care. Hope to see you soon. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.